Are you ready to start the mission? Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 14, I believe it is, of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan, and today I'm going to read from you several chapters from my book that's coming out on October 1st, Welcome to Belgrade. I say several because they're shorter chapters And I wanted to give you a podcast worth your time to listen to. Some of my earlier podcasts on my website were eight or ten minutes long, and I want to give you enough stuff to make you interested to stay and listen a little longer. So I'll set you up a little bit. By this point in the book where I'm going to start reading, my two characters, Mai Fisher and Alexei Bukharin, have come back together to work together again. This is much to Alexei's dismay because he wants to retire, but Mai loves it because they're doing what she always believed they did best, which was work together. And sometimes the only time they got along well as professionals and as a married couple was on a mission. So she's happy with the state of things. He's not so happy about it, but he wants to be with her. He doesn't want her to be alone on this type of mission in Belgrade in the year 2000 because he knows how dangerous it is. Not that he thinks she can't take care of herself, but he's come to the point in their relationship where he can no longer separate the professional from the husband and it bleeds over. Of course, my being my, she can separate her emotions from anything, which is another point of contention with them. So they're working together once again. She's described to him the pattern that she's discovered about the next victims of this apparent purge of the friends of Milosevic. And so they look over their her research and her profiling, her analyses, and decide on who the next victim is likely to be. And this is a totally made-up person that I created. This person is not based on a real personality. And I've named him uh, Medev Golranilya, and he's essentially a spin doctor. He would be the equivalent today of White House press office, the person who comes out and answers questions from the press every day, or who writes the president's speeches and makes sure that the speeches say what the president wants to be said. So that's kind of what this person is, and also with a little bit of uh, public relations thrown in, what back in the 80s and 90s we called a spin doctor. Someone who could take what a politician had said, usually for the bad, and spin it so that it 
made the politician look good. So this is what um, Medev Goranilya's job is, to make Milosevic look good. And Mai has determined he's likely the next victim. So let's get started with a reading from Welcome to Belgrade. Chapter 17 Goranilya's Lucky Day Medev Goranilya's press conference had gone without incident, and no one was more disappointed than Mai, because that meant attending more of them. Alexei had faded into the crowd and discovered why the people were so attentive and enthusiastic. Policemen handed out American $20 bills for attendance and promised twenty more to those who cheered at the mention of Milosevic's name. Together, they followed Goranya for the rest of the day and into the evening before conceding nothing would happen. When they stopped at a cafe for a light meal, they overheard people talking about the head of a provincial police secretariat who'd been killed that afternoon, a drive-by while he was on his afternoon jog. He'd been a few levels down on Mai's potential targets list. Mai dropped into a sullen silence, and Alexei decided not to mention the inefficiency of their both watching the same potential victim. Since he was the interloper in her mission, he'd wait for her to come to that conclusion. For the next press conference a few days later, Alexei again merged with the gathering crowd. Mai positioned herself with the knot of media types. Alexei noticed Golranilya's two police bodyguards edging away from him to talk to a man in a long black trench coat. He wore sunglasses and a fedora dipped low over his face, a cliché but an effective one to disguise himself. He handed each policeman an envelope, which they tucked inside their tunics, before they walked away. Alexei took out his mobile and called Mai, murmuring to her what he'd seen. This is it, then, she said, and hung up. Alexei worked his way through the crowd to a place where he could watch the nearby rooftops. He jogged up the front steps of an older government building and looked around, not only at rooftops, but at windows. Goranilya arrived, and the crowd cheered. With him was the Chinese ambassador to Yugoslavia, who stood stiff and serious a few paces behind the spin doctor. The ambassador's bodyguards formed a ring around him. Now why? Ah, yes. They were in front of the former Chinese embassy, the one NATO had accidentally bombed because they had outdated maps of Belgrade. Goranilya stepped up to the podium, tested the microphone, and began his speech. Standard stuff. The West was trying to smother Yugoslavia. No one cared about the Serbs' safety except Milosevic. Alexei tuned him out and kept studying the windows of the buildings around him. The damaged building on the next block had most of its windows boarded up, except for one on the fifth floor. Alexei narrowed his eyes at the window and caught movement, arms holding an old-style rifle, a Moisin Nagant. Alexei ducked behind a column and screwed a suppressor onto his gun, 
eyes never leaving that window. He dialed my again and said, Sniper, four o'clock, fifth floor. He hung up and gauntleted his gun in both hands. The rifle was now braced on the window sill, and a head rested on the stock to peer down the attached sight. Alexei fired a shot at the same time as the rifle fired. His bullet impacted the window sash, sending up a spray of plaster and splinters. The rifle ducked back, but re-emerged, pointed in his direction. My repocketed her phone as Golrenelia said, I'll take some questions now. Eyes on where Alexei had indicated, she elbowed a colleague aside and pushed toward the podium. Golrenelia spotted her and frowned, but she smiled at him, which made him smile and wink at her. A photo, he said, pointing to her camera. You want a photo? I'm, I'm sorry, what did you say? She motioned Garanelia to come toward her. He stepped away from the podium as the rifle fired, the shot loud in the enclosure the buildings made. Mai grabbed Garanelia by his arm and pulled him to the ground and put her body between him and the shooter. The ambassador's phalanx closed around him and hustled him away. Someone is shot at the minister, Mai shouted. Please, please! That call echoed among the spectators, and all at once the crowd broke, scattering in all directions. Get off me, Golranilia demanded. Mai put a knee in his back, and with the podium hiding most of her from the media, she drew the Beretta and fired toward an uncovered window, where she now made out a man with a rifle. Not pointed this way, though, but toward the rear of the crowd. Two shots from the rifle. Mai fired again. One more shot from the rifle, and the man ducked back into the darkness. Alexei. Several of the media came forward to help Goranelia, and Mai slipped her gun back in her waistband beneath her jacket. On her feet again, she headed for the sniper's building, phone out and dialing Alexei. The man shot once twice, a pause, a third time, but the column was thick and wide. Alexei ducked around to get another shot, but the rifle disappeared back inside the window. He sprinted down the steps and toward the sniper's nest. No point in trying the elevators in the dim lobby area. He went to the door leading to the stairs and kicked it open. His gun clearing the way before him, he took the stairs two at a time, the phone in his pocket vibrated, but he ignored it. A door opened somewhere above him, and he flattened himself against the wall as two more shots came his way. Alexei returned fire blindly and heard footsteps running across the building. I'm too fucking old for this, he muttered, and increased the pace of his climb. Gun first, he looked left and right on the fifth floor. Looted of its furnishings and even sheetrock, the building was open to his view both ways. Across the building from him, a man opened the fire escape door and disappeared. Alexei ran after him, but when he reached and kicked open the fire door, all he saw was a BMW speeding away. Breathing hard, he holstered his gun and crossed back to the sniper's spot and found he'd left the rifle behind. 
There'd be no fingerprints, but Alexei would take it anyway. Though the rifle was of World War II vintage, there were thousands of them all over Eastern Europe. He hefted the rifle in both hands, brought the stock to his shoulder. His father might have wielded the same type of rifle during the siege of Stalingrad, and he let himself feel a connection to the man who died before Alexei was born. A gun case lay nearby, and he put the rifle away in it. He picked up the expended brass and heard footsteps in the stairwell. He brought his sidearm out again as the door crashed open. Mai dashed a few paces into the room in a combat crouch, the Beretta moving with her eyes. When she saw him, she lowered it. Jesus wept, she panted. Why the fuck didn't you answer the phone? No time. He hooked a thumb toward the fire door. He got away in the car that must have been waiting for him at the rear of the building, but he left the rifle and brass behind. He hefted the gun case. Bloody hell, Alexei! I thought someone shot you! He shrugged and said, Careful, my. I might think you care. Let's get out of here before the police decide to search this building. Chapter 18 A Web to Unravel a mug of steaming tea in each hand, Mai entered the attic and saw Alexei at her desk, a jeweler's loop on his left eye. Through it, he peered at the spent brass from the sniper's rifle. He adjusted the crookneck lamp to get more light on the casings and studied them again. Mai set a mug of tea next to his left hand and looked over his shoulder. Anything? It's the 8 millimeter conversion, the Russian manufactured rifles took a 7.62 by 45R Russian service cartridge. It's a Mosin Nagant. Yes, the Austrians, Germans, and Poles are responsible for the 8mm conversion. This rifle is old, though. I'd say made in the 1920s, but maintained well. Aren't the Arsenal year of manufacture and serial number etched on the top of the chamber? Yes, but all defaced on this one. If we had an electron microscope handy, I might be able to make them out, but that wouldn't do any good. The man who used this attached no sentimental value to it since he left it behind. It's probably changed hands so many times there's no way to find an owner. His hands touched the rifle, gliding over the wooden stock. The firing pin hit dead center, he said in lecture mode, something she'd missed but wouldn't acknowledge. Someone did take good care of this, though. He took the loop from his eye, picked up his tea, and drank some. The case showed me nothing. No business cards left behind. No prints on it or the rifle. To be expected. Mai pulled the spare chair closer to the desk and sat, feet up on the desktop. Slouched in the chair, mug balanced on her stomach, she studied him a moment. What was that crack about? What crack? Careful, or I'll think you care. He didn't look at her. A joke. You'll notice I'm not laughing. I didn't appreciate it. We've been over and over this. I care, Alexei. Because I don't gush, I love you like some quivering schoolgirl. Every time I lay eyes on you doesn't mean I don't care. It was bloody tasteless of you to say that. He looked at her. No expression, of course. You're right, he said, 
I'm sorry. That's it. I've said I'm sorry. No need to argue about it. Anything on the news about the attempt? A change of subject to bring the conversation under his control, but she'd made her point. Belgrade Radio and Television have read Goranya's statement attributing his attempted assassination to agents of NATO, she said. The policemen were in on it. The man I saw them talking to handed them thick envelopes, and they left the area. What a hell of a web to unravel, Mai said, shaking her head. Corrupt police, the butcher of the Balkans, crimes against humanity, assassins. She smiled at Alexei. I don't know about you, but I'm aroused. I might be, too, if I hadn't run up five flights of stairs. That's ginseng tea. One more comment, and I'll take you downstairs to see if it worked. What comment? I figure Nelson didn't give me a team to keep the profile low. Having you here doubles my effort, but we'll run ourselves ragged trying to keep up with every assassination attempt in this country. We should split up. Something shifted in his eyes, something she couldn't quite make out. I thought the point of my being here was to work together, he said. No need to play devil's advocate. We would be working together on different aspects of the same mission. We've already seen one instance of someone's getting killed while we were focused elsewhere. If we divide my list of potential targets, we can cover more ground. It's your show, Mai. Tell me where you want me to go, and I'll go there. Is it? My show. Nelson gave you the mission, not me. Now, about that ginseng tea... All right, let's take a little break here and do the commercial thing. Welcome to Belgrade, the first book of the trilogy Self-Inflicted Wounds. And what I'm reading to you from is available for pre-order on Amazon. As I've said before, it publishes on October 1st, but you can pre-order it for your Kindle now at an introductory price of $3.99. That means if you have a Kindle or a Kindle app, when you wake up on October 1st, it'll already be loaded into your Kindle and ready for you to read. And then you can, when you read it, you can compare and see how well I did or didn't read the chapters that I've been reading to you from it. If you're interested in other work that I've done, you can go to my Amazon author page, which is Amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-D-U-N-C-A-N, no space between the names. And you can look at my other titles. I have quite a few of them. My goal is to match Jean Le Carré's output. And I'm pretty close to that. Now, he's written mostly novels. Some of my published works are short story collections, short story singles, and novellas. But I've just set the goal of matching his output and hope that I can achieve that. He's got about 20 years of uh, writing experience on me, so he's not well ahead of me, but he's ahead of me. 
and I hope to catch up to him at some point. He's one of those authors who not only inspires me to write espionage fiction, but I love the way he uses language and how he describes even the most mundane aspects of espionage tradecraft so that they're fascinating. In many of his books, there are these incredible interrogation scenes where the interrogator simply talks to the person that he or she is interrogating, and the person end up ends up like giving up his guts, you know, telling everything he knows. Now, this, of course, is a historic British interrogation method from World War II. There, there's a, a book about it, which I, I have used for research. And the, the first rule is essentially establish rapport with your subject. And they did this even when they were interrogating captured Nazis, even ones that they knew were war criminals. They established rapport, got to know the person, got to know what made them tick, what motivated them, and what would be likely to get them to start talking. And they used it quite effectively for many, many years. But of course, in the second Gulf War, the war after 9-11, which um, is tomorrow, the anniversary. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. The British kind of succumbed to the no-holds-barred type of interrogation that the Americans were pushing on its allies. I'd like to think that they've They've gotten back around to their old way of doing things because, it, as I said, it was extremely effective. And the intelligence gleaned from people that way had a lot of credibility because the person wasn't saying what the interrogator wanted to hear so the interrogator would stop hurting them. So let's uh, get back to what I just briefly mentioned Tomorrow is the 19th anniversary of the attacks on America on September the 11th, 2001. I worked at the time for the Federal Aviation Administration in what we call flight standards. We established the qualifications for pilots, mechanics, certificate the airlines, and surveil or conduct surveillance to make sure that pilots, mechanics, airlines, all sorts of operators are following the regulations. So, of course, since a majority of the hijackers who had some pilot training, including those who had pilot certificates, had been trained in the United States, our training methods and so forth were brought under scrutiny. And I was involved with accumulating data and answering questions about, uh, for Congress, for example, about how we oversee flight schools and how we determine who gets to come and fly in the United States. It's a very long and complicated story that I'm I'm not going to tell right now, and in fact. Some of it I can't really talk about uh, because some aspects of it that I was involved in have not been declassified. But it's a very significant 
event for me because that night when I left D.C., when I finally got out of D.C., six or seven o'clock that night, um, I was deemed an essential personnel and was not allowed to leave when the government was dismissed. And I left and could see smoke rising from the Pentagon where I worked was, you know, as the crow flew, only a couple of miles from the Pentagon across the Potomac River. And I honestly did not know if there would be a DC to come back to the following day. I know that sounds a little absurd right now, but then, 19 years ago, we had just been through a day that many of us, including our own security people in the FAA, who went on to become the TSA, they were taken out of the FAA and put into the Department of Homeland Security, some things that our security people really had never anticipated. And I may talk some more about that at another time, about how pilots were trained to handle hijackings up to that point was very, very different than what people expected at the time after this happened. And the training has since changed, and we've hardened the cockpit doors so that it's very difficult to get into the cockpit where it, it wasn't before. Again, a significant anniversary, 19 years. Tomorrow, um, tomorrow, sorry, next year will be the significant year, the 20th anniversary. I usually have to turn off the television on that day because I can't listen to, I can't see the things I saw live on television that day when it happened. I can't see them anymore. I saw them too much as I'm sure many people did watching from their homes. I was watching from the operations center at the FAA building in Washington, D.C. And it was truly something I never thought I would ever experience. And it's truly something I hope I will never experience again. I've been almost 11 years out of the government on October the 2nd of this year, I will have been retired 11 years. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a long time. That's long enough for the people who I worked with and the people who were involved with me and various 9-11 committees and task forces are pretty much all retired as well. But take some time tomorrow to remember that the people on board those airplanes were really the worst kind of victim you could possibly be. The victim who has no recourse to their fate, except for the one plane that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the passengers 
decided that that airplane was not going to be a weapon, even if it meant their lives. So please keep those people in mind tomorrow. I think about them. I think about them at this time every year. And that's probably why I can't watch seeing the airplanes go into the towers and seeing the smoking hole where the plane landed in, or crashed, not landed, crashed in Pennsylvania, or the spot on the Pentagon where the airplane entered. And I just want to say one thing to anybody who believes in conspiracy theories about 9-11, that there was no plane that crashed into the Pentagon. I know the team that went to the Pentagon with the National Transportation Safety Board and picked up pieces of that airplane. I know them, and I know they were not part of any conspiracy. That plane hit the Pentagon. I saw pieces of it, and I know what pieces of an airplane look like after that kind of a crash. So I may write about conspiracy theories or incorporate them into my fiction, but I honestly don't believe in any of it. It's crap. So save a thought tomorrow for the people who were passengers on those planes and the people who were in the World Trade Center when it collapsed. And let's make sure it doesn't happen again. All right, let's get back to reading from Welcome to Belgrade. Chapter 19, Brandy, Cigarettes, and Graves. Belgrade New Cemetery, Zvezdora, Serbia. Months after Arkin's murder, his widow remained in seclusion. However, her silence gave tacit approval of the monthly commemorations of his life held at his grave. Namely, she hadn't put a stop to them. Though this particular cemetery boasted some ostentatious grave architecture, Arkin's black marble tomb, with its huge triptych headstone, within which was a bronze bust of him wearing the World War I Serbian uniform he'd worn at his wedding, was close to being a monstrosity. An alabaster vase held bright red roses, and dozens of other bouquets and wreaths covered the grave. His funeral had attracted thousands of mourners. Some said it was bigger than Tito's, though that wasn't likely because attendance at Tito's was mandatory. Arkin's wife didn't attend these commemorations, but sent gifts for those who did, brandy and cigarettes. The mourners had dwindled to a few dozen weeping women, stern-faced members of his Serbian volunteer guard, better known as Arkin's Tigers, and people who came for the gifts. The speaker at this mini-memorial was a man Mai recognized as Arkin's second-in-command, and she made certain she went unnoticed in the crowd. Diane Venuka wore no uniform today. The paramilitaries had been outlawed, of course. 
after Kosovo. Venuka told stories of glorious victories and Arkin's blazing bravery that inspired all who encountered him to fight for Serbia. No mention of the villagers burned, the Muslims killed, the women raped. And that was why Mai had put him on her potential targets list. That and his job at the Defense Ministry had recently been eliminated. His limited social encounters with Milosevic had ended as well. He was, as a movie a few years back had been titled, A Dead Man Walking. His recounting of Arkin's adventures brought the memories back into Mai's head, and she looked at the people around her to fend them off. An old man to Mai's right nudged her and said, You know, they say Venuka visits the widow at that fortress of a house Arkin had. You know the one? Did she ever, having been a prisoner there for six weeks? She nodded. I think he is fucking her, the old man murmured. Serbs were as crude as Russians about all things sexual, and his certainty made my smile, though she doubted Arkin's widow would replace him in her heart or her bed so soon, if ever. The old man, who, from the medals on his coat, was a partisan from World War II, had a face lined with wrinkles and had long ago lost his teeth. He stayed at her side, he'd said, In case you need my raincoat. I think that's a definite possibility, Mai replied to his fucking remark. He gave her another nudge. Widows used to be my specialty. He winked at her. Before I lost my teeth. Ah, uh, but I'm not a widow, Mai said. The old man crossed himself. Blessings on you, then, but are you single? No. Sorry, Deda. He shrugged and applauded with the rest of the crowd at something Venuka said. Too bad. I never had complaints. Arkin used to fuck any female of legal age, they say, if he bothered to ask her age. I always wondered how he had anything left for a passionate piece like his wife. Venuka needs to be careful if he is fucking her. Why is that, Deda? Do you think Arkin will rise from the grave to avenge himself on his widow's lover? The old man looked at her as if she'd lost a few marbles. Ha! I meant Arkin probably had enough sex diseases to make his dick fall off. He kept up his snide remarks for Mai's ears only and they grew cruder as he sipped from the flask of brandy he'd been given. "'Why do you come to this?' Mai asked. "'Nothing else to do. One thing Arkin did. He put us on the map, and every month we get this little diversion. And free cigarettes and brandy.' He toasted Mai with his flask. "'Why are you here? You're not Serbian.' You speak the language well enough, but you have an accent. I'm a journalist. He squinted at her, studying her face. Uh, you're not that CNN woman, the one who always comes here. Now, she's another nice piece. Well, do not be insulted. You are piece too, but too skinny. What media do you work for? 
an internet magazine called Euroscene. Oh, we have an internet cafe in our neighborhood, thanks to Milosevic's son. I'll go there and look up your magazine. But only if you write good things about us. You'll have to side that, data. Where's your notebook and camera? I'm here incognito, you might say. Ah, the old man said and glanced around, his eyes shifty. I can keep secrets. Mai took some Deutschmarks from her coat pocket and pressed them into the old man's hand. He was quick to pocket the money and without looking at it. Ah, ah, I am very good at keeping secrets. While she bantered with the old man, Mai watched one of the men forming the honor guard. Like Venuka's paunch indicated, most of Arkin's tigers were going to seed. But this one particular man was thick, with muscle, lean, and fit. In defiance of the law, the honor guard wore their paramilitary uniforms and black balaclavas. His eyes, visible through the balaclava's holes, stayed fixed on Vinyuka instead of straight ahead, like the others. Vinyuka finally stopped talking, and a priest stepped forward to sprinkle Arkin's black marble tomb with holy water. Women crossed themselves and recited a prayer with the priest. Men doffed their hats. The rain that had threatened all morning started in earnest. The prayer over, Vinyuka barked, Ready! Fire! The honor guard raised their rifles to their shoulders and fired into the air, once, twice. With the third shot, the man Mai had watched pointed his rifle at Vinyuka. Shit, Mai said, and tried to push forward. The shot opened Vinyuka's head like a melon. Blood and brains splattered Arkin's bronze bust and splayed across the black stone. Vinyuka fell across Arkin's grave, dead. The crowd screamed and scattered. The men in the honor guard looked around in confusion, except for the shooter, who dropped his rifle and ran down the main path leading to the exit. Mai shoved people aside and gave chase. The shooter looked over his shoulder, saw his pursuer, and drew a semi-auto. Mai ducked behind a large grave marker, her Beretta out. Two rounds hit the marker, but she peered around it to see the man running again. She took off after him once more and managed to narrow the distance between them. A black BMW sat idling outside the cemetery gates, and he headed straight for it. Mai fired twice on the run, missing him. The door to the BMW opened, and a second man emerged, face also hidden by a balaclava. When Mai recognized the MAC-10 in his hand, she dived for cover behind a smaller grave marker and landed in a puddle of mud. The MAC-10 fired until its ammo was spent. The car roared away. Mai got to her knees and looked around her. People still ran willy-nilly about the cemetery, ducking behind grave markers and emerging to run. A dozen bodies lay about, and a stream of blood trickled among the pavers on the pathways. Bloody hell, Mai muttered, and a figure loomed over her. She recognized the old man before she fired. Surprised by the relief she felt at knowing he was all right, she lowered the gun. 
Well, Madame Journalist, he said, looks like you got yourself a story. Chapter 20 No Friend of Milosevic Alexei nursed the strong cup of coffee, not simply to explain his extended presence, but because it had given him indigestion. While he sipped, he watched a low-level government economist named Stefan Imelik, who also laundered money for Belgrade's crime bosses, and, rumor had it, for Milosevic's family as well. There was probably truth to that, since Milosevic lived well beyond his presidential salary. It was also rumored his clients allowed Imelik to skim generously to assure his silence. He lived modestly, however, but Alexei was sure an audit would uncover Swiss or Caribbean bank accounts. He also fit the pattern for one of Mai's potential victims. The man who dined at least twice a month at the presidential residence did no longer. The man who could drop into Milosevic's office any time now had to make an appointment. Alexei had checked with Oleg Dimitrov and discovered the Balkan and Russian mobs were satisfied with Emelik's services. If he were being targeted, it had to be because of his connection to Milosevic. Every afternoon, like the proverbial clockwork, Emelik left his office, walked three blocks to this cafe, and bought a coffee and a sweet. As he enjoyed his treats, he read through the business sections of several international papers. Mai had determined his behavior pattern after only a few days' observation. And so, apparently, had the occupants of a Mercedes SUV who circled the block several times. Emelik didn't help his safety at all, sitting every day at the same table at the front window. The heavy tent on the SUV's windows kept Alexei from determining how many were in the car, if this were a drive-by, probably only a shooter and a driver. However, the SUV could hold seven or eight people, enough for an all-out assault. Drive-bys, however, allowed a quick getaway, and if these killers were professional, they'd opt for that. What they wouldn't do is drive around and around repeatedly and make themselves obvious. Why drag out the hit, he wondered because the assailants wanted Emelik to be utterly comfortable and unconcerned. Alexei's old KGB instructor would tell her trainees, The cat's playthings are the mouse's tears. The killers were toying with Emelik because they liked it. Or the person who'd told them to kill Emelik was watching and got perverse pleasure from this exercise. Alexei's eyes flicked around the café. No, he wouldn't be inside, too likely to be collateral damage, but nearby, yes. The park across the street, where the outdoor market was at its apex of activity, the handler had to be there, either among the shoppers or the vendors, using a phone or a radio to tell the driver, No, circle one more time. Let him be completely off guard. Alexei would never have prolonged the process like this. Murder was, after all, a simple act, 
It was the convoluted and complex actions of some killers that led to their downfall. Alexei checked his watch, almost time for Emelik to return to work. The killers could be timing their attack for when he emerged from the cafe at his usual time, three o'clock on the dot. A few minutes from now. Alexei pushed the coffee aside, checked his watch again, and counted seconds in his head. Right before Emelik would rise from his table, Alexei was there, beside him. Comrade Emelik, Alexei said. Emelik, a frown of annoyance squeezing his face, looked up. Alexei held his coat open for Emelik to see his gun. Move away from the window, now. Alexei was accustomed to having people obey when he used that tone of voice. Emelik didn't disappoint. He not only left his table, he cowered beneath another at the far side of the cafe. When the other customers saw what he'd done, good Belgraders that they were, they followed suit. Alexei shoved the table aside and stood in the window as the SUV pulled up and stopped, the passenger side window lowering. He saw a black-masked face and hoped his body armor was good enough. Five seconds. Ten. No gun appeared, only a gloved hand to give him an obscene gesture. Alexei returned it, and the SUV sped away. He watched until it was out of sight, but it had no license plate. Alexei stayed where he was until it was obvious they wouldn't be back. He walked over to Emelik and squatted beside him. Comrade Emelik, don't come here every day at the same time. In fact, I'd change cafes and hire some bodyguards you can trust. Who? Who are you? Not a friend of Milosevic. Alexei rose and left the cafe through the back door. Though he was reasonably certain it was my turning the key in the front door lock, Alexei stopped his dinner prep and picked up a shotgun. This was Belgrade, after all, where a break-in could be a home invasion or mafia enforcement or a political assassination. Better safe than sorry. When Mai entered the kitchen, she quirked an eyebrow at the shotgun but said nothing. Alexei returned it to its convenient place and turned his back to keep her from seeing he was trying not to laugh. She was caked in drying gray mud, and her expression had been easy to read. Laugh at me, and you'll get no sex for a month. He swallowed the comments he would have liked to have offered, and asked, What happened? What does it look like? He turned around, smiling as if you took a mud bath with your clothes on. This is grave mud, and if you think that's sitting well with my Irish off... She stopped and shuddered. He struggled again to keep from laughing. Do you, uh, want to take a bath before you tell me what happened? That got the full eye roll. God, yes, Alexei, I want to take a bath first. She drew the beretta and laid it on the table. Clean that, please, she said, and headed for the stairs. Ma'am, yes, ma'am, he murmured, and turned down the stew he'd started. He poured her a glass of wine and carried that and the Beretta to the second-floor bath. 
While the tub filled, he sat on the floor with her gun kit and got to work. Ten minutes of soaking and half a glass of wine later, Mai let the dirty water drain and refill the tub. With no emotion, excess or otherwise, she told him what had happened at the cemetery. He stayed silent, not voicing his concern. She, yet again, was in the middle of a gun battle. Whoever the bastard was, she said, he mowed down a dozen people at random. Bastard. She drained the glass and gave him a forced smile. How was your day, darling? He told her about Emelik, but couldn't resist pointing out he'd managed to stay clean. She cut him a dark look, but didn't tell him to sleep in another room. The wine had taken some edge off. Nelson anticipated this, she said. Upstairs in the office, left side drawer in the desk blue folder. And in the folder? A profile of the head of the Belgrade Police Secretariat, perhaps the one good cop in Serbia. I'll read it over dinner. If he agrees to work with us, I think he should know who we are, but our cover story for his staff are that we're two FSB agents on assignment to explore how deep the Russian mafia has dug into Serbian organized crime. She grinned at him. Being FSB gives us an excuse to kick ass when we need to. The Vienna station has an excellent documents fabricator. He can have fake but impeccable FSB credentials here in a few days. But, she said, sobering, how much do we share with this cop? Let circumstances gauge that. We can use that connection to discover if there's any police involvement and how deep it goes. And, if we attract enough attention, we might draw the killers out into the open. If we can get our hands on one of them, I've been known to be persuasive in getting people to talk. He waggled his eyebrows at her. An understatement, she said, and rose from the bath. All right, there we are. Several chapters from Welcome to Belgrade. I hope you enjoyed that. And I want to thank you for listening. I did hit 100 plays between last Thursday and today when I'm recording this. So I was pretty happy to see that. 100 plays. And we have been operating for... Like I said, this is episode 14, so for a little over three months, three and a half months. But considering I haven't really done that much marketing, having 100 plays to me is is pretty good. It means a lot to me that people take the time to listen to me ramble on and on. So thank you for doing that. Tell your friends. Subscribe the places that where you're listening to subscribe to or to listen to and i hope you enjoy it so remember about tomorrow take a moment off to think about that particular day and what it meant and remember keep an eye out for spies This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2020, all rights 
reserved.